0: Orphan Entertainment, the podcast dedicated to public domain and abandoned media. I'm your host, Christopher. And you know good help is so hard to find, which is why I'm so thankful to have with me the never-to-be-forgotten woman. Lydia. Oh, don't
1: worry about me. I'm a seasoned campaigner. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Lydia, how are you doing? Oh, uh,
1: I am doing well. I you caught me in a drink. I almost took a sip. I should know better. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: I was even. I even saw you on the video, and I didn't.
1: <laughs> ah, you should be a waiter
0: <laughs> or a butler. Do you Oh, I like it. It is awesome to talk to you again. I think we're going to have a fun night recording this I'm excited. Not that we actually have ever not had a fun <laughs> night recording. This but. time it'll
1: be fun. Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, before we go any further, I want to thank everyone for tuning in. We certainly do appreciate you listening. Orphan Entertainment is available wherever you listen to the podcast. And please, if you have the option to do so, rate and review the show at any of those locales. It really does help the show get out to more people. Another great way to help is just by sharing the episode you're listening to on whatever social media platform you use. If you have to be a Facebook user, there is a group that you can join. This is a great place to find out what we're going to be covering next assuming I actually remember to post more than like a day ahead and an easy place to leave any comments on the films or episodes. We have a YouTube channel where you can watch many of the films we have covered here on the show. Just search for orphan entertainment. And I happened to check before we sat down and we are a little over 3000 subscribers on that YouTube channel. Nice, Thank you all. Yeah. Very awesome. If you would like to email us with any comments, suggestions, or feedback on this or any episode, please type or record a message and send it to orphanedentertainment at gmail.com. You can find links to all these places on our webpage over at orphanedentertainment.com. Speaking of emails, Lydia, we actually have an email today. Woohoo! <laughs> Kurt Fukuda has written us, and he says, Greetings, Christopher and Lydia. Thanks so much for your spot-on review of Scarlet Street. Your examination of the characters, the plot, and the themes were great. I totally understood your dilemma of how to rate the film. It's so excellent, but ouch, how many times would you want to view it? (laughs) Scarlet Street is a film that I thought was fabulous, but I could only watch it once because it was so painful. I saw the movie several years ago and was groaning throughout because I knew it was a one-way ride all the way to the bottom. Yeah. My stomach was churning when you played the audio, excerpt of the scene where Edward G. Robinson's Chris tells Joan Bennett's Kitty that he's free and available to marry her. You knew that Kitty wasn't going to be kind, but Bennett's portrayal of Kitty's utter contempt for Chris was absolutely devastating. You knew that something horrible was going to happen afterwards, and of course it did. I saw the woman in the window not long after watching Scarlet Street. A friend told me that it wasn't as torturous. And although the ending is a bit of a cheat, I found the movie far more enjoyable and have seen it a few times since, whereas I don't have the stomach to watch Scarlet Street ever again. By the way, you'll be surprised to know that Dan uh, Duya, Duye, who played the sleazy boyfriend in both Scarlet Street and Woman in the Window, was a graduate of Cornell University. Who would have guessed? <laughs> Throughout his career, he was great at either playing the Thug, as in Crisscross, or the Troubled Hero, as in Black Angel. I think he actually got to play the good guy in his later films. Wishing you both all the best and keep up the great work. Sincerely, Kurt.
1: Oh, well, fabulous. Thank you very thank much, you, sir. Kurt. Yeah, yes. I'm glad you
0: liked the episode. And uh, yeah, I kind of feel the same way about Scarlet Street. I, I'm i really <laughs> glad I watched it and I don't think I'll ever watch it again. <laughs>
1: yeah, well, and, you know, I was watching it and then I went, wait, I've seen this before, <laughs> but I didn't <laughs> remember the end, which is probably good. So <laughs> I think we're right there with you, Kurt. Thank you so much for the letter.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. And if anyone else wants to write, just make sure you can send that just like Kirk did to orphanedentertainment at gmail.com. Well, let's listen to one of the five minute mysteries and a promo for another podcast. And when we get back, Lydia and I are going to find out exactly what it is about my man Godfrey.
2: Another five minute mystery. Dr. Keats back so soon? thought you were out at the Sheridan estate working on a case. I was, if you can call it a case. What do you mean? Didn't old man Sheridan get any threatening letters after all? He's decided they're just from some old crank and wants the whole thing dismissed. I wish I thought it was that simple. Somehow those letters are just a little too sinister for a crank. I don't doubt Sheridan's got enemies plenty. Yeah, he isn't exactly the nicest guy in town from what I've heard. I'll get it. Police headquarters keep speaking. Mrs. Sheridan? What? Dead? I'll be right out. Now, Mrs. Sheridan, if you'll just think hard and remember all the details. Uh, you were in the room when it happened, eh? Yes. And Jenkins here? I was upstairs laying out Mr. Sheridan's things for bed, sir. I see. Where were you at the time the shot was fired, Mrs. Sheridan?
3: Over at the far end of the room by the fireplace. Mm-hmm. I was sitting in that large chair with my back to my husband.
2: Then you saw no one enter the room?
3: No. Charles, Mr. Sheridan, had said a moment before that he thought he heard someone out in the patio. He went to the French door and looked out. Next thing I knew, a shot was fired. I heard Mr. Sheridan groan, and when I turned around, he was laying there on the floor. Just as he is now, flat on his back, bullet through his heart.
2: It was awful. You didn't touch the body,
3: well, of course not. I I couldn't.
2: And you, Jenkins? I heard the shot faintly from upstairs, sir. And uh, uh, I ran down immediately, but Mr. Sheridan was already dead. Yes. Just one more thing, Mrs. Sheridan. Uh, this bump on the back of the victim's head, is there any way you can explain that?
3: Oh, I should think that's simple enough, Inspector. It no doubt occurred from the force of the fall.
2: Oh, yes. Yes, of course. I hadn't thought of that.
3: Inspector Keats. you've got to find out who did this awful thing. I won't stay in this house another minute. You see, just this morning, I got a threatening letter. Now I'm frightened for my own life.
2: Yes, Mrs. Sheridan, I can see how you would be. The jury is apt to be pretty determined.
3: Jury? I don't understand.
2: Then allow me to make myself clear, Mrs. Sheridan. You're under arrest for the murder of your husband. Why did the inspector arrest Mrs. Sheridan for her husband's murder? Do you know the clue? In a moment, we'll hear, but first...
0: We let things pile up in the DVR. We add them to our queues. We wait for the DVDs and Blu-rays. We time shift. The Time Shifters Podcast. Sci-fi, horror, fantasy, superheroes, comedy, action, film, television, maybe some not-so-current events. Find us on iTunes or at
2: timeshifterspodcast.com. And now, back to our story. Under a wrist. You can't arrest me. If you'll pardon my saying so, Mrs. Sheridan, I think I already have. Mr. Sheridan was not shot unexpectedly by any mysterious visitor, and the position of his body is proof enough. It may interest you to know, Mrs. Sheridan, that contrary to any movies you might recall seeing, a person who suddenly dies while standing, whether from bullets or otherwise, invariably falls forward. Mr. Sheridan is very neatly stretched on his back. And now, Mrs. Sheridan, what about that bump on the back of the victim's head?
3: I... I knocked him out from behind before I shot him. I
2: see. Too bad you didn't leave his body as it fell, Mrs. Sheridan. Instead of arranging it so neatly, might have saved you a little trip tonight, a ride in Black Mariah. <laughs>
0: And Godfrey is an American comedy film from 1936, directed by Gregory LaCava and stars William Powell and Carol Lombard, and was based on the 1935 novel 1101 Park Avenue by Eric Hatch. Charles Rogers, head of Universal, called it a surefire laugh getting novel, so the studio purchased the film rights and assigned Hatch to write the script with Maury Riskind, who would end up getting top billing for the screenplay. The story is about a quote-unquote forgotten man, Godfrey, a formerly well-to-do gentleman who has fallen on hard times and living at a New York City dump. Wealthy socialite Cornelia Bullock tries to pay him to come back to a party with her so she can win a scavenger hunt. He declines, kind of forcibly. The woman's (laughs) younger sister, Irene, feels a tinge of remorse over the incident and tries apologizing. While speaking to her, he decides that he'd like to help young Irene beat her rude sister and follows her to the party. Irene takes a liking to Godfrey and hires him on the spot to be the family's new butler, a position he cautiously accepts. Life with the Bullocks will be challenging to say the least, but Godfrey decides to take it on despite Cornelia's plot to disparage him, and the entire family learns quickly that there's more to Godfrey's story than what his torn and disheveled clothes tell. This would be the first big movie that Universal produced after being taken over by new management, and without any big names under contract, they had to look to other studios to find uh, the stars of the film. The studio's original choice to play Irene was Constance Bennett, or Miriam Hopkins, but the director Gregory Lecava only would agree to Bennett if Universal borrowed William Powell from NGM. Well, Powell would only take the role if Carol Lombard played Irene. Powell and Lombard were actually briefly married and had divorced three years earlier, but they uh, separated and remained friends, and so they still enjoyed working together. Universal Studios agreed to all this, and they loaned Margaret Sullivan to Paramount in order to acquire Lombard. Director Gregory LaCava and Powell had a disagreement about how Godfrey should be portrayed, but they managed to settle things over a bottle of scotch. The next morning, LaCava showed up for shooting with a headache— but there was no Pal. The actor instead sent a telegram stating, We may have found Godry- Godfrey last night, but we lost Pal. See you tomorrow. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Carol Lombard, when tensions were high on the set, was known for inserting four-letter words into her dialogue, for helps to help lighten things a little for the cast. Clips of her cursing and messing up her lines can still be seen in existing outtakes. My Man Godfrey was the first film to be nominated in all four Academy Award acting categories. It's also the only film in Oscar history to receive a nomination in all four acting categories and not be nominated for Best Picture. In case you're curious, the great Ziegfeld uh, took the honor. I actually took the Oscar. I didn't look up to see who all was nominated, but Ziegfeld. uh,
1: I was curious.
0: (laughs) My Man Godfrey was twice adapted as a one-hour radio broadcast on Lux Radio Theater once in May 1938 with David Niven playing the part of Tommy Gray and in November 1954 with Jeff Chandler and Julie Adams in the roles. It was also adapted to radio in a half-hour version on the October 1946 episode of Academy Award Theater starring William Powell. When the film was remade in 1957, David Niven would uh, would actually play Godfrey opposite June Allison.
1: That makes so much sense. I had seen a a poster and I thought that is not William Powell. I, I get that they look a little alike, <laughs> but I was like, that's definitely David Niven and it's even an artist rendering. So I was so confused. That makes so much more sense now. This
0: film was a bit of a gray area as far as the copyright goes. The copyright was not renewed after the at-time required 28 years, leaving most to consider it in public domain. But the original novel is still under copyright, and do what is kind of called multi-layered works, an original owner, in this case Eric Hatch or his estate, could claim ownership of the script, but not the pictures. So, for the sake of this podcast, we'll let the original film fall under the abandoned category, Definitely under copyright would be the 2002 remastered release by Criterion and 2005's colorized version from 20th Century Fox Home Video. I have to admit, I'm kind of curious to look up the colorized version.
1: You know, I tried one online, but it's, it had a disclaimer at the beginning that said this has been, uh, it's been colorized by smart, by some kind of technolo- mm-hmm. technology. It was by it was automated. It wasn't like hand recolored, A- like amateur kind done. of
0: thing. No, I'd like to see actually,
1: and you could yeah. tell it was I, awful. <laughs> I didn't. Get I'd, right I'd,
0: I might have to look up the twentieth century Fox version because two thousand five. That's going to be dealing with some at least fairly decent uh, technology. Uh, not the best by today's standards, but still not too bad. I'd be curious to see it because this film would have been pretty uh, pretty awesome in color. I think.
1: It would certainly have been. Um, I it, it just from the it, the beginning credits, it would have been. Um, what's the word I want? Probably the same word, the word I was trying
0: to think of just a few seconds ago. And couldn't.
1: <laughs> it would have been a visual extravaganza. Mm. I can't think of the word I want, but we'll just call that it. That actually works extravaganza. very well. <laughs>
0: I think we spoke some about Carol Lombard way back in December of 2012 when we reviewed the very entertaining Nothing Sacred. So the briefest Mm -hmm. of mentions about William Powell. An American actor who may be best known for being paired 14 times with actress Myrna Loy, including six times as Nick and Nora Charles in the Thin Man films. Under contract to Paramount throughout most of the 20s, Powell played scoundrels and villains in the early part of his career. He gradually shifted into leading man roles, paired with such leading ladies as uh, B.B. Daniels, Evelyn Brent, and Kay Francis. When Powell left Paramount to sign with Warner Brothers, Kay Francis joined him. One of their most successful films together was One Way Passage. Powell and Francis, between their time at both studios, made seven films together. Myrna Loy and Powell starred in the aforementioned Best Picture of 1936, The Great Ziegfeld with Powell in the title role, and Loy is Ziegfeld's wife, Billy Burke. Powell was loved by many people in Hollywood. Actress Marion Schilling worked with him in Shadow of the Law and called him self-effacing, deferential, exceedingly thoughtful of other people. He was one of the kindest human beings I have ever met. He sensed that I was in awe of him, so from the start, he did what he could to put me at ease. And I've actually read a couple things about him, and certainly uh, read things from um, uh, Myrna Loy, uh, you know, they worked together many times. He had the knack of actually working with a lot of the people repeatedly. And to do that, I think you've got to be a decent person. People have to have fun mm-hmm. working with you or enjoy working with you. If you're going to do 14 films together, seven films together.
1: Right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, I was introduced to him by my dad who showed us the Thin Man series. I, I don't know if we started watching it way back in the day when it was on, you know, TCM and, and uh, uh, AMC and all that. But um, it, it, I think he ended up sending me a set of it. I still, I don't keep a lot of DVDs anymore, but I still have all of the Thin Man series. I just, you can't get over the dialogue between William Powell and Myrna Loy and that. Are, they're hilarious. They're so funny. So highly recommended and, Led to my. Yeah, affinity I am for quickly
0: him. becoming a William Powell fan. I've just started watching the Thin Man films. Uh, I've I've oh, watched so the <laughs> I've watched I have them all, and I've watched the first two. I haven't gotten any further than that, and now this film. Um, so this is three <laughs> films with William Powell that I've seen, and yeah, he is just he is amazing. And you're right about the Thin Man series. I know this show isn't about the Thin Man films, but they are <laughs> absolutely incredible. And yeah, he and Myrna Loy are just. God, they
1: they play off each other so perfectly. I
0: read uh, just real quick. I don't want to go too much further down this rabbit hole, but I read where uh, <laughs> you know their romance in the film, it, you know, it didn't extend anywhere beyond that. They were never romantically involved. <laughs> they went and stayed at a hotel during filming, and the uh, hotel clerk pretty was just getting ready to set them up in the same room.
1: Oh, <laughs> Here, oh, and roo- oh and we have a room and we have a room for mr
0: and mrs charles
1: <laughs> and oh. the funny thing is this must have
0: been um yeah just a, a just a couple years prior to the or a few years prior to this film being made because uh pal and carol lombard had just gotten married and oh. she was there with them at the time oh so oh. carol <laughs> lombard and myrna Loy, they took the room and William Powell stayed in a smaller room downstairs, <laughs> and the oh, two women funny. said it was the most fun. They said they felt like they were out at summer camp. They sat up and told stories and sang and they had a good time and drank. <laughs> oh, and that's that was wonderful. It was, yeah, it was oh, awesome. I love it. <laughs> they, this, you know, everyone talks about like the Brat Pack of Hollywood, you know, with Sinatra and, and talk and, and and all those. The, the, the Rat, Rat Pack, Pack excuse yes. me. Um, and I feel like. That kind of camaraderie between some celebs, I think, started well before them. I I read things about mm-hmm. Powell and Loy and Lombard, and it sounds like these that that's the kind of stuff these people did. They got together, they had a great time. Like God, this is what I I want to be in nineteen thirties Hollywood. You know, just deeply oh, entrenched yeah. in this. It had to have been the yeah. era
1: absolutely i mean it is the glamour area it, it, there's this bizarre contrast when it was the it was the the great depression was in full swing and you know there's some scenes in this of you know forgotten men and men living on trash heaps and and that was a huge percentage of the population at this point in america there were just so many people but you know people would still scrape together their money to go and see these Insane, glamorous women in this in these movies, you know, and these men and how they dealt with what was or how they dealt, how they <laughs> dealed, how they dealt with what was going on in society at the time. I feel like this movie is a big commentary on what was currently going on there. But you know, there, but it, it's a weird mix. You've got this incredible glamour, you know, and the Hollywood set was part of that, and then you have this incredible depression going on in the opposite side of it. So it seems like it would have been so much fun to be there. But then you think, oh, but wait, which side would I yeah, have been exactly. on? <laughs> mm. Very likely
0: I would be on the trash heap, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you know, midnight in Paris. Where are you at? <laughs> you know, Are you there with all of the swanky people or are you scraping right. by?
0: I did notice and I, I have to think that there was a some thought behind it that the forgotten men, as they call them in this film, is – Everyone living in a trash heap and everything, but they don't look as down as out. Other than the fact that they're living in a trash heap, but even like mm-hmm. uh, William Powell, when you first see Godfrey, his coat doesn't look all that dirty. It doesn't look torn. He doesn't look all that disheveled. He has a you know a f- scruff on his face. He's got like five o'clock, maybe two days worth of growth on his face.
1: Uh, he looks yes, like he you. he looks like me right now. <laughs>
0: But they they <laughs> seem to make a point of like not making the men look too disheveled. I guess. Did you notice that?
1: You know, it, it's interesting. I didn't think about it from that perspective. Um, I suppose there's something to do with them just you know grabbing stuff out of the out of the costume department and saying, oh, okay, if we put these things together, it kind of looks. It looks a little yeah, bit don't like. Don't dirty them. You know,
0: yeah. Don't don't dirty them. We need them for this him other production. Much, we can't d- afford to. Wa- <laughs> exactly. We can't afford to wash it.
1: <laughs> well, it's funny. I I I think I wasn't thinking too hard about that. They, I mean, and this is digging here. I'm digging hard. I mean, you know, don't take this as any kind of hearsay, even. But you know, they. On the other hand, there are men living there that were well off before, right. and would have taken care of themselves. That has, I'm sure, that has nothing to do with the decision. Right. <laughs> but if you really just want to, you know. Make an argument to, you know, calm your cognitive dissonance a little bit. <laughs> that might be the one. Oh, well, but, you know, these are still, these are men that well, did, I, you know, have I was a thinking they may have portrayed
0: point. them a little shinier than they might have been to help the sort because of, of see they're just normal people who just, you know, had, mm-hmm. were on bad times kind of thing.
1: There's definitely, uh, I. I don't take this the wrong way. There's political motivation mm-hmm. behind it. Absolutely. They're they are presenting these people with a message yes. in mind. They're not trying to make them look like, you know, people that have they even though they're forgotten men, they're not fallen souls, you know, they're not they're not people that have turned in desperation to right. crime or, you know, to other morally ambiguous pastimes or ways of bringing in money. Oh, you know, for the most part. So I think I think you're probably right. There's I think a le- a level of that may have been considered, but certainly there is an intentional message in this movie of making these people seem like they at least potentially are respectable mm-hmm. people that just are like the rest of everybody else in 1935, 1936 that are just in a horrible financial situation and trying to get by.
0: No, absolutely. And I think that's why, because they wanted that message to come across, they couldn't have that message being told by somebody that looked like they stunk.
1: Right. <laughs> yeah, they didn't want to bring in somebody that was going to make a mockery of it. And that's why you bring in William Powell, because no matter that he's got you know scruff on his face and holes in his pockets, he still... You know, comports himself with dignity, mm-hmm. and I love the the moment when he's leaving the Waldorf, and uh, the footmen open the door. Or the, I suppose they're not called footmen, they uh, but they open the door to let him go out. And it's funny because he's as he puts his hat on. He still seems very much like a gentleman, even though at the point we don't know that he was right. So, uh, yeah, I think they you know they chose him. I'm sure because he's not you know somebody that's given up, well, you know, obviously we know a little bit about the story, but, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, th- that that he's one of the people that hasn't given up mm-hmm. on himself entirely.
0: And I love him, and I, I, again, a little bit of the statement, I love the idea that, or this, the message about the, you know, the socialites that are, you know, they're still, they're <laughs> managing to they're managing they're still wealthy you know the rest of the, the mm-hmm. country is struggling to survive and they're throwing this lavish party and going out with this ridiculous scavenger hunt where they're bringing back goats and fruit carts and oh if you get a forgotten man and be you're the first one there you get <laughs> 50 points or whatever and you yep. win the prize and without any actual regard to the other people's lives that they're affecting Cornelia just wants to use Godfrey as a tool. She doesn't see him as a man or as a person. Exactly. She's just like, oh, this is this is the point I'm good, I, these are the points I'm gonna get to win this prize.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That that's a message that is obvious. You know, it's not like there is nothing in this film that is like uh subtle <laughs> or guarded. <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, and Irene says it early on. She says, Oh, it's all for charity. You think you could follow
4: a, an intelligent conversation for just a moment?
1: I'll try.
4: Well, that's fine. Do you mind telling me just what a scavenger hunt is?
3: Well, a scavenger hunt is exactly like a treasure hunt. Except in a treasure hunt, you try to find something you want. And in a scavenger hunt, you try to find something that nobody wants. Mm.
2: Like a forgotten man.
3: That's right. And the one that wins gets a prize. Only there really isn't a prize. It's just the honor of winning because all the money goes to charity. That is, if there's any money left over, But then there never is.
4: Mm. Well, that... Mm. Clears the whole matter up beautifully.
3: You know, I've decided I don't want to play any more games with human beings as objects. It's kind of sordid when you think of it. I mean, when you think it over.
4: Yeah. I don't know.
2: I haven't thought it over.
0: When Irene, you you get the feeling that she's never really spoken those words. And when she speaks them, it starts sinking in about how ridiculous the entire thing is. Mm -hmm. And she starts that little the shadow of guilt kind of starts creeping in when she starts really thinking and it. it starts sinking in. And it's like, Oh yeah, I guess that's really not a good thing. Is it?
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I hadn't oh. thought
0: about it before.
1: I, in fact, I've never thought about anything before. Irene is an interesting character because she is absolutely a complete airhead, <laughs> yeah, a bit. <laughs> but he says it later on. He says, you know, they're, they're, that she's a kind, a very kind hearted girl.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But she just, you know, so her heart's in the right place in general when she stops to think about things, but she takes so strongly after her mother, <laughs> 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 who is hilarious in this movie. She takes so strongly after her mother that she doesn't really stop to consider things very often. She doesn't, she just, you know, runs along with the crowd, and you get the impression she tags along after her sister or did when they were younger. You know, that constant sibling rivalry is created by her spending so much time following her sister around. But when she finally starts to think about things, you see a little bit more of Cornelia's side, which Cornelia is extremely clever, very intelligent, mm-hmm. and completely heartless. Yes. So they're an interesting they're an interesting pair. I love the way that they're reflected off one another in this movie because they're the same, they're they're the same person with a Kind heart or with a cold heart, right?
0: Well, you and two sides of of the same coin, yes. Y-
1: or yes, op- they're opposites, but also so remarkably similar. It's kind of funny. Both very um, competitive and both very self centered, but the main difference seems to be just, you know, where their heart is. Right.
0: Yeah, because neither one of them have had to want for anything in their lives, mm-hmm. and. For one, it's made her cold and a bit callous, and for the other, it's just made her lighthearted. Liberty
1: Gibbet. yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, yeah, the entire Bullock family—you do have to wonder—was Angelica Bullock ever sane?
1: <laughs> no, she's so funny I feel like I feel like she is who Irene would have become if Irene had never met Godfrey mm. She just runs around saying whatever comes into her head and it doesn't matter if it makes any sense or not. And Irene even says at one point, Godfrey says, didn't anybody ever teach you about propriety? Didn't your mother ever tell you about it? And she's like, oh, no, she talks a lot, but she doesn't ever say anything. (laughs) And the irony is, you know, that would be an insult if it were said about anybody else. But about Angelica, it's absolutely true. Absolutely. She talks constantly. And she never says anything meaningful. And she'll contradict herself constantly back and forth. And it just doesn't matter. Oh, I'm just going to change my story right now. But oh, isn't everything so funny? And oh, do that thing that was so funny the other day, Carlo. Oh, look at him. Isn't he brilliant? And I realized today I would definitely be cast as her if I were (laughs) trying out for this movie. (laughs) But she she is still a sweet lady. She's not mean-spirited. Uh, she just is a t- totally airhead, just a complete airhead. She's a bit, bu- a bit
0: oblivious to <laughs> extremely
1: <yeah>. oblivious. <laughs> well,
0: you just wonder what Alexander. I, I have to think this is probably a um, too well-to-do families,
1: A <laughs> Park Avenue marriage. Yes, yes, it's it's the closest thing you can come to an arranged marriage. You know, in in the modern Western world, I think mm-hmm. most likely, or you know. We have another Mr. and Mrs. Bennett situation where they met when they were young and he thought, oh, she's young and beautiful and fun. I'm going to marry her. And then the more he got to know her, the more he was like, oh, my goodness, this woman doesn't have a single brain cell in her head.
0: (laughs) Alexander Bullock. Mr. Bullock was actually one of my favorite characters in this movie because he was (laughs) the one that was just he looked like he was he was the only sane person in the madhouse. And he didn't know how he got there.
4: (laughs) Well, well, well. Imagine the bullets gathered together all in one room. Oh, well, don't forget Carlo. I'm not going to forget Carlo. Don't bother about me. I feel like one of the family. Don't you go away. You don't mind if I discuss a few family matters, do you, Carlo? What? No, not at all. Oh, Alexander, now you're not going to bring up those sordid business matters again, I hope. I've just been going over last month's bills, and I find that you people have confused me with the Treasury Department.
3: Oh, don't start that again, Dad.
4: I don't mind giving the government 60% of what I make, but I can't do it when my family spend 50%.
3: Well, why should the government get more money than your own family? That's what I want to know. Why should the government get more than your own flesh and blood?
4: Well, that's just the way they have of doing things. Ah, uh, money, money, money. The Frankenstein monster that destroys souls. Please don't say anything more about it. You're upsetting Carlo. We've got to come to an understanding right now. Either Carlo is or I am. Am what? Well, one of us has got to, and that's all there is to it. Alexander, you're inebriated. You don't know what you're talking about. Well, who would know what they're talking about living with a bunch like this? There's one thing I do know. What this family needs is discipline. I've been a pretty patient man, but when people start riding horses up their front steps and parking them in the library, that's going a little bit too far.
3: Horses? Are you insinuating that I rode a horse up the front steps last night? Maybe that wasn't a horse
4: I saw in the library this morning.
3: Well, I'm positive I didn't ride a horse into the library because I didn't have my riding costume on. It was Irene who rode the horse up the front steps. What horse? Don't play innocent. I begged you not to do it. I didn't ride a horse, but if I did ride a horse, who broke those windows on Fifth Avenue? What windows?
4: You know what windows. And how about that college sap? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and I don't care who broke the horse or rode the windows up the steps or yeah, yeah, yeah. But this family's got to settle down. Oh, will you stop bellowing? Look what you're doing to Carlo. Hang, hey, Carlo. Oh.
1: he. I love his character. He plays sort of the same character in a few movies. He's also in The Lady Eve. He's He's Henry Fonda's father in The Lady Eve, but he's a wealthy. Guy that t- kind of doesn't know what's going on in the family. <laughs> and he's just, they're getting pushed around a lot.
0: The actor, <laughs> uh, just so you know, is uh, Eugene Pallet, I guess is or, mm-hmm. uh, how you say his last name. Yes. Yeah, he is brilliant. Uh, believe me, if you see him, you'll know him.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> he he kind of commands the screen and his voice <laughs> will get your attention. He's got a fantastic <laughs> voice for this kind of film, for any film.
1: And, I, and he has some. The the best lines in this movie are are from him and his wife and the maid, Molly.
0: Yes, Molly I is great. I
1: love Molly. Molly's got to be, she just has the best lines in every scene. <laughs> there's not a scene with her without an amazing line. Good morning.
2: Good morning. I'm the new- uh...
1: Yes, I know you're the new buffer. Well,
2: how did you know?
3: Well, there's one every day at this hour. They're dropping in and out all the time. Why is that? Some get fired, some quit.
4: Is the family that exacting?
3: No, they're that nutty. Uh,
4: May I be frank?
3: Is that your name?
4: Well, my name is Godfrey.
3: All right, be frank.
4: You're uh, quite an enthusiast.
3: Don't you worry about me. I'm a seasoned campaigner. Uh,
2: uh, May we be friends?
3: Oh, I'm friends with all the butlers. Sit down. What's a three-letter seabird bird with an R in the middle? What?
2: Oh, I—I I don't know.
3: You're no help. Hey, where'd you get the trick suit?
2: What's wrong with it? Well, it might
3: look better if you took the rental tag off the coat.
0: Uh, should I? Where, where should I put my stuff? Probably just leave it by the door.
1: <laughs> you won't be here long. I love her so much. She's so funny. Just. You know, earlier I said I'm a seasoned campaigner. You know, he makes a comment. Oh, you seem pretty. You seem pretty enthusiastic about this because she's so wry about it. And she says, "Oh, don't you worry about me. I've been here, you know, forever. I'm used to this craziness." <laughs> I looked it up, by the way. And a three-letter seabird with an R in the middle is an urn. Oh, well, there you go. Thank you. I know everybody was going to be wondering that for the rest <laughs> of the movie, just like I was. <laughs> now you can answer it. <laughs>
0: Uh, Jean Dixon is Molly. It's a name I recognize, but I don't know why. But I, for some reason, I recognize <laughs> the name. Um, but that was. Oh, Molly. she's.
1: Yeah, she's been in a whole bunch of stuff. Um, Holiday is, you know, kind of the top built. And she, and I, actually, I should I should take that back. She hasn't been in a whole bunch of stuff, but she's been in a couple of things that you would recognize. But she's just. She's just dry. (laughs) I
0: I think she's probably one of those actresses that should have been bigger than maybe she was. Mm. And, you know, who knows by circumstance or life, who knows? She just didn't grab the stardom. But, yeah, she absolutely should have been like one of the bigger stars.
1: (laughs) Yeah, she certainly, I would have expected to have seen her in a lot more comedies. Mm Mm-hmm. Because she just plays so beautifully in this. But, you know, you never know what happened in somebody's life, what may have made them do a dozen movies and then decide that was it.
0: Yeah, got married. You know, that's what like you did you. back in the day. <laughs> yeah, you got married and have kids. You know, can't be acting. <laughs> um, honestly, there's nobody in this film that I think... Uh, William Powell, yes, is just fantastic. I, you just, I, I'm not sure you could get better than William Powell. <laughs> and, and Carol Lombard is hilarious as well. She is so damn funny.
1: When I first watched this movie, and it's been years, mm-hmm. it's been quite a while. I found her to be incredibly annoying. Really, it, it, just horribly annoying. But interestingly, the more recent times that I've watched this, I've kind of I've shifted my opinion. But I, but the question that's cropped up for me has been. Almost, why didn't Godfrey get together with Cornelia? Because, and I mean, you know, I think we've kind of answered that already with the, you know, cold-hearted person kind of thing, but she's so clever, and he's so clever, I I feel like she is a better match for him, just uh, intellectually.
0: You could have easily see this story do kind of a, a turn and be a... You know, he he melts your cold heart, kind of thing. It yes. makes and her see I, the errors of her ways. Yeah,
1: yeah, and then Irene goes and finds somebody that's just as fun as she is. Right. You know, I think that's the that's the equation or the the sort of yeah.
0: God, 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 God Godfrey's old f- old fun loving friend Tommy and Irene hit yes, it off. Yes, yeah.
1: exactly. And that's sort of the modern recipe that would have been followed. Absolutely. Uh, you know, especially pushing for the equality thing. And we push so hard for equality that it hurts sometimes. And in this movie, it's more of... I. So originally, or recently, I had thought, you know, that's really strange that they chose her. But then also, kind of in the midst of that ponderance, I also thought, you know what, though? Opposites attract. Mm-hmm. And so it does make sense that, you know, Godfrey would attract somebody that is maybe not on top of their game, but is innocent and and eager in the way that he has been spoiled from being. Look at look
0: at be. Mr. and Mrs. Bullock. I mean, you couldn't get two opposites there. and <laughs> 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 They've been married for, and, apparently, for, you know, some 30 years, maybe, and yeah, had and two, like two grown daughters. To have, yeah. yeah,
1: exactly. So, you know, and, and you start to think, okay, well, I start to think, well, you know, so maybe Cornelia needs somebody that's a little bit more laid back a little less of a type a personality (laughs) that doesn't sound familiar at all so
0: (laughs) i did not really understand the carlo (laughs) and what the hell he was doing there he was uh he was uh mrs bullock's um protege
1: (laughs) and, and it's interesting i think i almost feel like he's just another example of how off the rails the Bullock family is. Because, you know, here they are spending money hosting this, you know, artist who basically is just a companion for Mrs. Bullock. Mm-hmm. And, you know, ta- co- goes out to the theater with her and helps her with these mad scavenger hunts and plays music for her when she's bored. Really, he's he's essentially a paid companion. Right. Uh, but even in this time a, typically a paid companion would have been a woman for a woman. So it's just a, uh it's one of those funny things where, again, it just shows how off the rails this family has gotten. Well,
0: especially because uh, you definitely get the impression that Mr. Bullock has no time for Carlo whatsoever.
1: <laughs> There's <laughs> a great little scene where he says that we're he and I have to come to an understanding. What's that? I, I don't know, but one of us has to. You know? yeah.
0: Is, this, is then, this your son? What?
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I'll own up to a lot of mistakes, but that's not my fault. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, Carlo. Carlo is his own, his own special, special piece.
0: <laughs> well, and again, he almost feels like, and this kind of goes back to the way Cornelia was treating Godfrey, and in a in a way, Carlo, I feel like was actually sort of the property of Missus Bullock, in yes. in some, uh, in some extent. But he was like more of in a he may have been a you know a. Uh, He's not exactly a prisoner, but all I, I keep thinking of the analogy of a gilded cage. Um,
1: well, he's the equivalent of a kept woman. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, essentially, if if it weren't for Mister Bullock, you know, right. he would, you would have no trouble imagining that she, that Carlo was Mrs. bullock Bullock's been on the side, mm-hmm. um, except that she's she's not that. Uh, she's not that devious so um yeah he he's definitely he's the pomeranian yes you know he's the he's yeah you know what other little yeah
0: yeah he is her pet yeah that would probably be a better analogy
1: and and as as what we would perceive as a man with no self-respect he's totally happy being somebody's pet yeah as long as he gets fed often and much.
0: Yes, exactly. Yeah. And if, if that means he's going to play the piano, fine. If that means he's going to hop around on the couch the, pretending to be a gorilla, <laughs> fine. Oh <my> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Basically, yes. Yeah, basically a pet, a human pet.
0: Mm-hmm. Who will occasionally throw a couple tantrums because he knows Mrs. Bullock is going to, oh no, it's okay. And
1: yeah. come to his defense. Yeah. <laughs> Anytime that they talk about money, which makes me laugh because I had a moment where I was watching this most recently. I thought, I wonder if he's throwing a tantrum about money because he really worries about them talking about money and he doesn't want any, you know, he doesn't want them to focus on how much he costs or mm-hmm. if he perceives how much it upsets Mrs. Bullock and, you know, like like the pet dog that'll growl at the person that upsets the owner, you know, right and it, it was, I don't think there, we're ever going to come to, you know, a scientific conclusion about it, but it was an interesting thought.
0: Yeah, I've, I'm have i going to go with a little bit more of the former than the latter on that. <laughs> I think he just doesn't want anyone to realize how much he's costing them because he, yes. he would quickly find himself in, you know, a uh, not so comfortable situation if he didn't mm-hmm. have the Bullock's house to uh, surround himself in.
1: But it is interesting. I mean, he is in a very comfortable situation, but he does seem to enjoy Mrs. Bullock. At no point does he, you know, roll his eyes or seem like, yeah, oh, that's true. no, this woman's being irritating. It's They're just happy to be in each other's company, and he doesn't have to pay for it, so it's perfect for him. Mm-hmm.
0: We're <laughs> talking about, about everyone else besides William Powell and Carol Lombard.
1: Except Godfrey, e- yeah. <laughs> except
0: for Godfrey, via my man Godfrey, and we have we've barely talked about Godfrey. I thought it was interesting that, you know, we get to sort of spoon-fed the uh, the fact that he was not always the man on the on the uh, garbage dump. He actually came from a well-to-do family. We we find out when you know a big soiree at the Bullock's house, and uh, someone else who's apparently didn't fall on hard times shows up, and oh hey, he they they're old uh, college friends, and you know he went to <laughs> which one was it, Stanford or which Harvard? Harvard? I think. Yeah, thank you. That's our first hint that there's more to God. Well, we I think we've always had hints that there's more to Godfrey just by the way he carries himself. He mm-hmm. went from being on a garbage dump to being a fairly decent butler almost <laughs> a very overnight. Very good
1: butler. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Actually, an excellent butler. I mean, he's able to handle Missus Bullock as soon as he steps into the room, mm-hmm. even though she's seeing pixies.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So yeah, you I think you have the impression that there's more to him than we immediately know. But it is interesting. I think the first time if you if you're watching it for the first time and here comes, you know, Tommy Gray, this kind of outspoken, loud, you know, boisterous person and he suddenly recognizes Godfrey and and they start, you know, aside to each other, oh, no, I'm Smith right now. Oh, yeah, what's the game? And you have a little bit of time there to go, oh, is Godfrey a criminal? Mm-hmm. Is he is he a gangster? You know who who is Tommy Gray? Wait, how how does he know the Bullocks? Oh, is this all a scam? You know, are they are they setting something up? But pretty quickly you get past that <laughs> as soon as you find out what's really going on.
0: Godfrey just is an interesting character. The fact that he goes from someone who probably had a butler to be <laughs> willing to be a butler. And I think his time on the garbage dump I think is what really changes him. And we get that towards the end where he's talking about, look, the, the only difference between these men and any of these socialites at these parties are a job.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And yeah, he he realized that the, the, they're good people who want to do good. They're good-hearted people. And I think that's his kind of his epiphany, I guess, why he's a uh, Cooking beans <laughs> at the garbage dump, and mm-hmm. so yeah, so yes, doing what would be considered kind of a menial job as being someone's butler is suddenly well, that's not such a bad thing. Yeah, you know, there's respect mm-hmm. here because I'm working.
1: Mm-hmm. Man, he says early on, you know, I I came to the Waldorf because I was interested to see what a bunch of empty-headed nitwicks look like. Right. Now I'm going to go back to be with people who are truly important. Yes, you know, just. Driving it home that look, you can have all the money in the world, but if you act like an idiot, you're basically not worth the money that you've got for sure.
0: Exactly. I think this film too really sets the um, it sets the groundwork to the uh, sort of um, the help becomes more than just the help um, that we see in movies mm-hmm. and TV shows. Uh, much later down the road, the first thing I thought of, <laughs> strangely enough, was like Mister Belvedere, <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> and he- I thought of. I thought of Mary Poppins.
0: Sure, absolutely.
1: (laughs) Especially at the end where he, you know, he says, Molly, you're sweet. And he walks out the door. And I thought, just like Mary Poppins, my work here is done. He's one (laughs) carpet bag away. Yeah. (laughs) Yep, Mary Poppins,
0: um, Mr. Belvedere. If you go into the 80s, I've I've also thought of like, even like, who's the boss? Because then you you throw in the romance (laughs) aspect. Uh, Oh, uh uh-huh.
1: but the nanny <laughs> kidding, kidding. <laughs> that would be a whole different movie. <laughs> uh
0: so yeah, it, it was neat kind of seeing it seeing the beginning of it, I I I guess, because you see this pattern in film and television repeated ad nauseum.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well it is it is an interesting i think especially at this time it was an interesting concept not only to have you know people people with no financial value being of high worth but then to have somebody that potentially could step right back into the world of glitz and money and choose not to mm-hmm. um and, and through that acknowledge the value of the people that Everybody could identify with it this time, or almost everybody could identify with it this time. Yeah, certainly. And I think that's something
0: that's kind of gotten lost with all the times that this idea has been retold. Is using it to tell a message
3: mm-hmm.
0: uh, seems to have gotten lost. Like you, you watch something like Mister um, Belvedere, mm. and there's no <laughs> message about anything really.
1: Common people, yeah.
0: yeah. I like that they were able to use it to tell this story at a time that I imagine a lot of people needed to to hear it and see it
1: and feel validated. Yes. Certainly. To not only to acknowledge that, you know, people in in financial situations below their own, but also people that had, were in those situations to be acknowledged as still being a valuable part of society and still having potential.
0: You you want to hope that someone some well-to-do person saw this film in the theater and then, <laughs> you know, walked home or walked to their the, the taxi or the car and saw someone on the street, obviously living on the street, and maybe said, I'm going to give him a few bucks and maybe, you know, he can go get something to eat and get cleaned up or something, mm-hmm. you know, I mean.
1: Have a shot at a job. Exactly.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, or maybe, you know what, we, we, we need uh, a new gardener, but look at that guy over there, you know, he. Let's talk to him. I I don't know. Maybe that's, you know, a fantasy, but. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I think it depends. I, I think probably it's not, I think it's probably less of a fantasy than we might imagine it is, especially in this time period where you did have such a dramatic break between, I don't like to say classes of people, but between financial situations with people, yes. which was extremely dramatic at this point.
0: I'm thinking even, even if it doesn't result in someone deciding to uh, give a handout or offer a job, at least maybe they wouldn't, uh, they'd be less likely to give someone the side eye.
1: Mm hmm. Or be rude to them for the situation they're in. Exactly. Which is interesting. I did a little bit of digging because, you know, it's, it's, thing for me (laughs) and and i was looking up when this book was written of course 1935 or 1934 1935 and uh the time shortly before this movie was made and just found a couple of really interesting things of course we already mentioned it was in the middle of the great depression Uh, 1933 was i think the worst year for the depression but it was still going strong at this time this was uh 19 the year before this movie came out was the year that um alcoholics anonymous was founded oh So, so at the point in the movie where uh, they, uh, you know, where Godfrey's asked, you know, what do you have to drink? And he says, I'll have a lemonade for me. And he's like, Oh, that's strong. Oh, yeah, I can take it or leave it. Don't worry about me. But, uh, you know, it was a big subject at this point. And then uh, Social Security was established the year before this. Mm -hmm. So early on in the movie, when one of the guys says, Oh yeah, you know, the I, I had a great I had a sweet gig lined up today, but then the cops came and got involved. You know, if they would just leave us all alone, we get along just fine. But they've got all these government things coming in now. It's really interesting to to think, oh, okay, so this is literally the year after Social Security was instated and they're saying, Oh, you know, the government needs to leave us alone and just let us get on with business. I just thought that – I just found that to be extremely interesting. Also, there's a comment totally unrelated to anything else. (laughs) When Godfrey is recognized by Tommy Gray and uh, they're trying to explain how Tommy knows him without giving away Godfrey's backstory – he says, and finally, he, you know, I had to, you know, he he chose his wife and five children over me. (laughs) And, and, And Irene, of course, you know, freaks out, five children, he's got five children. And I love Mrs. Bullock says, well, if a woman in Canada can have five children, then why can't Godfrey? I looked it up, 1934. Uh, quintuplets were born in Canada. Nice. And this oh. is the first known instance of a quintuplet surviving past birth. So that would have been a huge
0: news story.
1: Hilarious joke, yeah. which of course, you know, we wouldn't have gotten otherwise. But yeah, there's the the lines in this movie. Not only are they poignant, and of course a lot of social commentary, but I think there's probably way more social commentary than we understand.
0: Yeah, because... But even what... Because we were there. Yeah, because we just
1: don't know the current (laughs) events exactly. But even without knowing it, there's so much comedy and so much strong social (laughs) – there's so much strong social awareness in this movie. That makes it sound horribly boring to me, but I'm going to (laughs) say it anyway. It it is a – I think it's a different kind of movie where, it, you know, people – were, they were working so hard to entertain people, but you've got a little bit of a Sullivan's travel situation here where they're saying, look, okay, it's great to be entertained. And that's super important. Um, but also don't forget, you know, being entertained isn't the only important thing. There's more to what's going on in our society than just having a good time and, you know, running a scavenger hunt and getting drunk. There, there's more to think about than just this.
0: I guess I have what I would consider maybe critiques, but I don't know if I want to say it now or say it as, like, a closing thought when we go Uh, to, like, ratings.
1: We might be kind of at that point. Yeah. Uh, Unless there's anything else we should really cover with this. I think, you know, we've already talked about the writing being very good. There are one-liners and dialogue in this that are very funny. I just kept sitting here just laughing out loud. I've got my headphones on watching it and I know my husband just hears me in the other room just ah ha 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 and he's like oh
0: Yes, I will admit to <laughs> laughing out loud a few times while watching this film. <laughs> Yes, there's Definitely. some great dialogue. There's some great jokes in the dialogue. There's some great visual kind of gags, uh, the reactions, <laughs> the people's reaction to some things. Watching, watch people in the background when people are saying and doing stuff, and you see, yes. you'll see Godfrey at the back. You see the eyes roll. I, I mean,
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's excellent immersion in this movie. That I just made it sound so boring. I think that that the, phrase made it sound awfully boring, but it's so funny. I don't even
0: remember the what was going on. There was. Things, everyone going one way or another, this and that, and people are going off. And then he just goes, oh, this family. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes.
0: Uh, oh. Yeah. So I would say that my critique maybe is just the super simple, easy, sugar-coated kind of ending Um, Oh, these, I mean, really, truly. Oh, and everything turns out fine. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, It's almost a little too simple, and especially when it comes to Cornelia, because in the end, without giving a whole lot of little plot threads away and everything, I mean, Cornelia at the very end just suddenly has this change, like, oh, I've been such a terrible person kind of change of attitude. And like, wow, that came quick and easy. (laughs) <laughs> you know, I, just I through, have a deep do th- th- through one act by Godfrey? One comment.
1: yeah. I have a deep thought about that, though. Okay. I genuinely do. So I think you can make an argument that from the beginning, Cornelia finds Godfrey attractive in a sense. She could have walked up to anybody at the trash heap and she walked up to Godfrey. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, he's tall. He carries himself well. He's well-spoken. But as time goes on... And he doesn't respond to her the way that she's used to men responding to her. She says, you know, nobody pushes Cornelia Bullock into us, into an ash heap, you know. And as he doesn't respond to her the way that she thinks he should, she becomes both more offended and more attracted. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the, that thing that we love to talk about, about women loving men that are mean to them. Right. <laughs> and even though Godfrey isn't unreasonably mean to her, he treats her the way she deserves to be treated and nobody else does. And later on in the movie, you know, she says, you're you're quite attractive. And he says, as a butler or as a smith? And I think she says, you know, oh, you're not a very good butler. Even though she brushes aside the comment, she is paying him a direct compliment about his appearance. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's, I think it's not a stretch to say, Cornelia gets everything she wants. And Irene has something she wants. So of course she's going to go out of her way to to Raz Irene about it, but there is some genuine, um, not, maybe not attraction in the sense of, you know, I'm, I'm attracted to this person as a life partner, but uh, it's like a forbidden fruit kind of thing. The thing that she can't, the one thing she can't have, she wants it. So she's attracted to it. Mm-hmm. And so I think it does make sense for her to have an emotional reaction to him. Um, and uh, you know, <laughs> I would say maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I really don't think I am. I think if if you kind of approach it from that perspective and watch their interactions, it does make sense. She sends her, you know, boy of the moment off to distract somebody so she can have a couple minutes alone to, you know, to elbow Godfrey. And that's not a thing that most women would do if they don't, you know, you wouldn't... Send a guy you're interested in off to distract somebody else so you could hang out with a guy you're not interested in. I'm sorry, I know you guys are shocked to hear this, <laughs> you're totally surprised to hear this, but that's not how women do it. So, <laughs> I think you know, yeah, it's possible I'm reading more detail into it than was necessarily intended, but I don't think that it's a misread. I think that there is something that Cornelia sees in Godfrey that she wants, whether it's just purely vanity. Or whether it's recognition of him as being an intellectual person that she's that's a you know an equal for her intellectually, prob- probably more the former than the latter. But then you know it, to have him then come back and explain to her, you know their their similarities and how he even found value despite her treatment of him. I can see her being maybe not as affected as she was, but certainly affected. I guess I I would say
0: it's an ending that I think is um, maybe ten years sooner than I would expect. This is we were talking about last time about how films in the uh, in the '40s and the '50s suddenly get very colorful and flamboyant and and very um, everything's kind of sugar coated. And so mm-hmm. for this film, especially with the message and everything that it had, I mean, in the end, it that message kind of comes full circle and everything. But yeah, the ending is very. Uh, everything's tied up and, you know, putting it...
1: Too neatly. Too neatly a with little a little bow neatly. on top, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think that it, you know, if you... <laughs> bizarrely, the movie that I keep comparing this to in my mind is Sabrina. Not the original one, but, you know, the later one with Harrison Ford. and Oh, Louis okay. Mm-hmm. And... um Yeah. The storylines are extremely similar, but I've just seen the later one more. So I think of it more frequently, I suppose, but it is extremely similar. You have this person that it's not, it's not identical, but you know, you do have somebody that's perceived as being in a lower social class and the person that is in the higher social class falls for them. And it, I think we're used to a little bit of a grittier ending. We're used to somebody having to chase somebody through the airport, somebody having to fly overseas to find somebody, somebody having to go and stop a wedding, mm-hmm. you know? And, and we're used to that. We're used to that final struggle. And there, that is something that doesn't really exist in this movie. You have conflict, but you don't really have a climactic scene where somebody has to rush to somebody else to stop them making a horrible mistake that they're going to regret for the rest of their lives, you know, that kind of thing. So it does feel a little rushed. It does feel a little too smooth, but but I also think at this time, when you're talking about you know I mentioned Sullivan's Travels, it is a time when people need a laugh, when people need to not have to fight quite as hard for the happy ending because they're already struggling with that in in real life. Again, maybe I'm maybe I'm over arguing, <laughs> but it, it makes sense to me that you know they that. Ultimately the the fans would be like can't they just get together at the end you know does it have to be this like horrible struggle can't they just be happy you know we want somebody to be happy if we have to struggle let's just go see somebody else but we're going to live vicariously it's living vicariously through the people on the screen we all do it so in the era it makes sense today it wouldn't make sense but at the time i think it might make a bit of sense no
0: and, and that's fair enough and i will admit that the actual final line of the movie made me smile
1: Yes, it cracks me up every time I hear it. The the final
0: scene is definitely worth going through the, oh, really? Okay, well, fine. It's all, everything's happy. It's a good, good, yep. And okay, that's fine.
1: That is funny. Yep. (laughs) I agree. And, oh, they, and, and so
0: expertly delivered by Carol Lombard. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah, I said er, early on, I said that when I first watched it, she irritated me and I didn't like her at all. But now that I'm a little bit more mature, shocking, I know, now that I'm a little <laughs> bit more mature, I appreciate the the journey that she goes through, the the development. She starts off as, you know, this airheaded person that's just running around and, not thinking about other people and and she develops genuine emotion for somebody and you know tries to be grown up about what she perceives as the end of their relationship mm-hmm. you know and and you, she she grows enough that i wasn't angry at any potential you know, happy ending that they could have together, <laughs> and that's a, that says a lot. You know, maybe that says that I grew enough, <laughs> but but certainly I, I I found a bit more to like in her character. The more times I watched it, the more I thought, okay, no, no, I can see. Okay, no, no, that makes sense. Oh yeah, she did respond well at that moment. Oh yeah, okay. So, but then at the end, yeah, she's she. I like that they don't change her completely. She doesn't right. go from being you know, this this ditzy girl to being some ingenue. And suddenly here she is, you know, she didn't turn into Sandy Benettoni at the end of Grease where she's wearing the black tight pants. Right, right. <laughs> She's still herself.
0: No, absolutely. No, I, I think... Um assuming her and godfrey last their their family is going to look a lot like the bullocks <laughs>
1: <laughs> hopefully a little less because i i appreciate that early on mr bullock says or maybe not early on a little earlier he says you know i you know some of this is my fault because you you know this family needs discipline you know i i just overlooked all these things so you kind of, I think, I think there's a little bit of hope there that yes. maybe Godfrey, Godfrey and Irene's keep kids a won't little be tighter rein. Right
0: yes. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> and you know, of course, Irene has Godfrey, where Angelica was probably left mostly to her own devices. That's by very true. More careless, Alexander. Yes.
0: So, as far as ratings go, where would you put this one? I think I went first last time, so I'm curious to see <laughs> where you go.
1: Othels. Yes. So this is a movie. I I think. It's hard not to recommend. There are other movies out there that have a little better flow in their story, that maybe you connect with some of the characters a little bit better than others. Um, But if you are writing dialogue, and especially if you're interested in comedy at all, I think this movie is a must-see. This is such a great example of how you can have several main, you know, or primary characters, prominent characters. You've got Godfrey, you've got all four of the Bullocks, you've got Molly, you've got Tommy Gray, you've got Carlo, and all of these people are in a lot of the scenes together. But you don't have what you have today where you've got single shots of one person delivering a line and then a single shot of somebody reacting to it, there is a lot going on both in the dialogue and the direction of this movie that I think is worth watching. Um, if, you, if you're doing anything with dialogue, if you're any kind of a writer, I think this is an excellent example of dialogue between multiple characters, and it it and there are several scenes in this movie where Mrs. Bullock is talking over Irene, who's talking over Mr. Bullock and, and they're all carrying completely different conversations, but they just snap right through and they link together and it makes the situation hilarious. It makes it confusing, but you get this real sense of confusion that this house is always in. Mm -hmm. And so I think just there's, there's a, a song in Phantom of the Opera where there are seven distinct parts and they're all being sung at the same time. Different songs. And the, the end result is beautiful and really impressive. And that's, to me, what these scenes are in this movie. And, and so I have to give this five Othels. I'm not saying it's a perfect film. But I think if you're going to do anything with with writing or with film or direction, if you're interested, pretty much if you're interested in film or or stage production or anything like that, this is an excellent movie to watch. There's just so much to learn from it. And the characters are enjoyable. The dialogue is hilarious, as we've already talked about. And the the actors in it are all individually strong without overplaying their parts. So I, I have to give it five othels because there's just too much in it to recommend it, whether or not you love how it ends, or whether or not you you know love all the details of it, or you know there, you can always nitpick things. But this is such a strong, you know, it's one of the reasons that it's considered such a great movie. There are so many strong aspects to it that it deserves all of all of the nominations that it got. I mean, and so you know, which would have had to have been best actor, best actress, best supporting actor, best supporting actress, exactly. And it deserves every one of those nominations,
0: nope absolutely, And I think i'm gonna go ahead and uh share your rating as well uh this is one i mean who am i going who am I to argue with the library of Congress who they they <laughs> they, they selected this one in ninety nine to be preserved in the national Film registry yeah, it's just an amazingly fun and easy film to watch, and it's you're right i there's just i can't I'm just gonna repeat everything you just said. You know, is really what it boils down to. Yeah, ditto. No, I absolutely enjoyed this film immensely. Probably even more than I I thought I would. I I know it came highly recommended. I knew you had said you had seen it before you recommended the film. I think this has even come up in other discussions. And you mentioned Mm -hmm. My Man Godfrey. It's always been one that's kind of like on the list. And so I finally sat down to watch it. And almost immediately, I was like... I'm in it. (laughs) Um, I would absolutely recommend people watch this film. No, this no way I couldn't. And there's nobody I wouldn't recommend it
1: to. I agree. I agree. And it's funny. I think usually when we're talking about films, I think, oh man, I had even more fun talking about this movie than I did watching it. This is, I think, one of only a couple of examples where I would genuinely tell you, hey, if you enjoy listening to this podcast. And you haven't watched this movie yet, you're going to be so disappointed in this episode because the movie's even better. Oh yeah! So <laughs> you know, I as much as I love talking with you about it, the, you, you just the movie's better than the podcast. Yeah. For the first time in ten years, no, I'm kidding.
0: whatever, whatever <laughs> clips, whatever clips I end up putting into this film will not do this film justice.
1: No, definitely, it, it can't because the whole thing is just highly, highly enjoyable.
0: All right, well, I guess that will do it. Let's stop now before we start repeating ourselves like we always do.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, thank you very much for recommending this film and for discussing it with me. This has been a lot of fun, of course, Lydia. It's always a pleasure to talk to you.
1: absolutely, and you know i i I know I haven't said it yet today. I love David Niven, <laughs> <laughs> but I will say William Powell is just darn phenomenal. So I'm so thrilled we got to cover one of his movies together. Oh,
0: me too. Me too. Like I said, I've I've I'm really becoming a big fan of his. He's <laughs> so good. And it was actually kind of fun seeing him in this after if you know anything about The Thin Man. <laughs>
1: oh, watch it, them. They're great. It was
0: it was great when he he decides to go a little stronger than the lemonade. And so the next time you see him, he's completely drunk and he's kind of stumbling. They're like, oh, wow, here it is. It's Nick Charles again. Yeah. <laughs> he does it so well.
1: Where's Nora?
0: <laughs> we'll be back in another month with another fun film or at least another fun discussion. I can always guarantee you a fun discussion.
1: <laughs> we can promise that much.
0: <laughs> uh, thank you very much for listening and we will talk to you next time. Bye.
1: Bye.